welcome to Carrying On The Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring For The Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. Here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages editor-in-chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting the November-December 2022 issue of Caring. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program, and Beth also conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Beth, welcome back to Caring on the Go. Thanks, Carl. It's great to be back with you. All right. Well, we'll kick off today's session talking about the lead front page article by Christine Kilgore about Paxlovid. Uh, and I, I hate to use a, a brand name, but I'm not going to say the whole uh, you know generic name. So forgive me for that. And I know that the uptake of Paxlovid in nursing home residents with COVID has been disappointing, probably for a variety of reasons although it's clearly quite effective in reducing hospitalizations and death in this population. So what are your takeaways from this article, Dr. Gallick? So um, we know that, as, as you mentioned, Paxilvid is beneficial for um, individuals, particularly older adults, who have a higher risk of deterioration if they're um, to acquire COVID. And um, even though we have vaccines, uh, folks in our settings are still at high risk. Um, there were concerns about rebound symptoms that I think um, scared some people off. Also, some hesitancy due to the um, it only having the emergency use authorization from the FDA. However, I, I saw an article fairly recently that was demonstrating that the rebound symptoms were not nearly as severe and um, as one's thought, and that uh, you know the, the benefits were, um, in terms of decreasing hospitalizations, were pretty significant. I, I think some of the challenges involve... Um, the potential for drug-drug interactions. So there's a need to hold some medications for a short period of time or adjust dose, things like antiarrhythmic agents like amiodarone, statins, some anticoagulants, and digoxin. 
Um, the one thing that um, this does, though, is it provides an opportunity for physicians, advanced practice providers, other clinicians to really work closely with their pharmacist colleagues um, and develop, develop these relationships and be able to communicate um, effectively about this drug with patients, um, residents, and families. Um, the, the other thing to kind of keep in mind will be about availability soon. So most skilled nursing facilities have been receiving um, the government procured Paxlovid through their state or um, through the jurisdiction's health department. Um, although there's been some pharmacies serving nursing homes that have been receiving it directly from the federal government. However, the federal government has indicated that coverage and distribution of Paxlovid will be transitioning to the commercial market in mid-2023. So you want to, again, work together with your um, institutional pharmacies that supply your facilities to make sure that they have this available if needed. Yeah, that's a lot. And I, I do think the thing you just mentioned about, uh, you know, the the payment issues, uh, let's hope that does not turn out to be yet another impediment uh, to uh, our being able to get this medication into the people that need it the most. Uh, you mentioned about rebound. And I've in my practice, I've had some patients um, flat out refuse to take it because they heard that the CDC director and President Biden, you know, had Paxlovid rebound. I think there's pretty good evidence that there's rebound symptoms from from COVID in many people who don't take Paxlovid, right, uh, where you get better and then worse again. So um, I hope that's a good uh, point for our, uh, you know, our listeners to, to share with their uh, patients and patients' families when they're considering this decision. I had a, a close family member of mine um, was having some deterioration. He, he was at risk and was having some deterioration um, with breathing and um, was prescribed Paxlovid. Although, to be honest with you, the internist was a little uh, wary about prescribing it. But within 48 hours, such significant improvement. I know that's just an N of one, but um, it kind of sold me. Yeah, well, I, let's face it, the, the statistics are pretty compelling, right? I mean, it's something like a 70% yeah. reduction in hospitalizations and, you know, reduction in death that, uh, you know, it passes the mom test, right? The, if it was my yeah. mom, I'd want her to get it. Yeah. Um, exactly. And our listeners, yeah, our listeners might also be interested to know that AMDA is working with CMS and uh, actually the White House uh, and, uh, you know, American Society of Consultant Pharmacists. Uh, on some strategies that we hope will improve uptake of Paxlovid and other COVID therapeutics in nursing homes. So, you know, we'll see if we can figure out ways to make make it more of the rule rather than the exception. I think it, it really has been disappointing. And, um, you know, there's still people, nursing home residents dying of, uh, of COVID every week, uh, even though we're in a bit of a lull now. Uh, and hopefully that, that persists, but we're in that time of year where I'm afraid uh, I'm afraid it won't. So, um, all right. So the next article also on our front page is by two social workers, Paige Hector and Nancy Kusmal. So Paige is also our associate editor of Caring for the Ages and one of my favorite social workers, uh, uh, maybe second to my sister. Um, and coincidentally, this article is about social workers in nursing homes and who I think have such a critically important role in a lot of our residents' lives, 
many of our listeners are probably aware, based on their own experience, that to work as a social services director in a nursing home in the U.S., you don't have to have a social work degree or a license. You know, you may just have a bachelor's or something uh, in a related uh, subject area. Of course, many of them, uh, in spite of maybe not having these degrees or certifications or licenses, do a wonderful job. They're great problem solvers, uh, you know, all degrees and licensure aside. So uh, in any event, Beth, what do you get from this article? So one thing to keep in mind is that um, CMS doesn't require nursing homes to have a licensed social worker unless they have more than 120 beds. Right. Um, Although, yeah. So the larger facilities, I think, are more likely to um, have folks who are licensed. Um, The the things that I think social workers uh, bring, I could I could talk about this for a long time, but um, they have some unique training. They have this overarching framework in so in social work that um, is really holistic and really brings a strengths perspective. Um, they also have a lot of uh, training in terms of research and program evaluation. And I think their attention to issues um, such as justice and optimizing outcomes for vulnerable populations is really second to none. Um, Personally, um, I've had some really important collaborations with social workers throughout my career. And um, early in my career, when I worked in inpatient psychiatry, uh, the social workers that I I partnered with really taught me how to communicate with families around challenging and sometimes emotionally charged topics. So um, they're a wonderful resource. And while there's not a requirement for them to be part of the interdisciplinary team, if you're not engaging your social worker um, within um, the interdisciplinary team, you're really missing out. Yeah. I, well, I like to hope that in in any IDT meeting that isn't uh, beyond something that's totally, totally clinical and has nothing to do with any any psychosocial issues. And as I sit here, it's hard to picture such a scenario. Uh, the social services person should should always be part of it. And, and sometimes they really do think outside the box and they really come up with some creative solutions. And I, I really admire that. That's It's really a, a fantastic profession. Yeah. But the, there's no regulatory requirement for them to be part of those um, IDT um, meetings. I, I, most facilities do, but there's no requirement. So just very interesting um, things about the regulations because um, some things in long-term care, as we know, are, are regulated um, uh, pretty significantly. And it's just interesting that this is not. It is. I mean, when you talk about it like a, a dietitian and so on, of course, we know CMS doesn't require uh, any particular training for medical directors. All you have to do is have an MD degree. I mean, you could be a retired pediatrician or an interventional radiologist or whatever and still be a nursing home medical director. So it is a little bit inconsistent. But, hey, you know, it's uh, clearly not a perfect system. Right, Beth? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, next, let's talk about your Caring Collaborative article on page two of the November-December issue on a topic that can be a serious concern in our care setting, and that is wandering and elopement. Elopement events in particular can result in catastrophic outcomes 
uh, you know, like a resident getting hit by a car or dying of hypothermia, and obviously can also create regulatory and civil liability exposure. So what can you share about what you learned in writing this piece? So I, I had the opportunity to take a look at the revised regulations under appendix, I think it's PP. Um, right. And so I would advise anyone who hasn't read the information about wandering and elopement in the regulations to do so. Um, it, it basically holds the facility accountable, even if you're doing things to mitigate the risk. If that individual gets out and you're not aware, it still holds you accountable unless, um, you know, you're aware that the person has left and they, um, you know, have capacity to make that decision. Um, and so I think it's going to be something that the surveyors will be focusing on. So uh, a few things to kind of help you. Um, the article describes some risks associated with elopement. I think many of them are pretty straightforward and things we see, like if you're displaying signs of trying to leave or you're packing or you're calling home, um, you know, those are, are kind of red flags. The, the other thing is um, just trying to identify and resolve unmet needs for people who wander, um, you know, they may be looking for something or they may not be engaged. And while there's no medicine to treat wandering and elopement, um, it's important for us to try to identify triggers or patterns and use our non-farm interventions, or in some cases, farm interventions, if there's secondary anxiety or depression or insomnia or, or psychosis that could be contributing to elopement behaviors. The second thing is really to use technology to try to help you. Um, I tell a little story in the beginning of the article about how I um, inadvertently helped a, a resident that I knew years before elope from the facility. She had been in independent living when I had previously been at the facility. And she came to me and said, I'm done visiting my friend here. It's time for me to go. <laughs> and uh, I assumed... She I assume she was still in her independent living apartment and I very carefully um, opened the door and technology saved me because uh, the alarms went off and, and things were okay in the end. And the only thing bruised was my ego, but um, the resident was safe. So use technology to help you. And nowadays there's even some more sophisticated sensor-based uh, monitoring uh systems that are, are, you know, kind of a little better in identifying things such as unassisted bed leaving events, even, and it doesn't make an external noise, but it will notify, um, you know, the caregiver. Right, right. That has implications as far as falls and stuff too, obviously. Yeah. Exactly. And then the last thing is really to enter in, to engage the interdisciplinary team, because when a resident's at high risk for elopement, it really requires everybody to kind of problem solve, um, educate visitors um, about eggs, you know, about if there's someone that they have, you know, you have a concern about who's leaving, um, just if you don't have to identify the person, but say, you know, we do have someone who's prone to go out. And so if someone's trying to leave, with you, always come to staff um, to just double check and engaging your reception staff, your security personnel, buildings and ground st staff and housekeeping. It's really all hands on deck. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've seen cases where even uh, like they'll have the, the number to the keypad 
posted right by the, or, you know, in close proximity to the actual keypad. So that's not a very reliable source. I mean, if you've got severe dementia, then maybe that, that works. But if you like your lady who was clever enough to say, uh, you know, I'm finished visiting my friend. Can you let me out? Uh, you know, that's certainly having uh, having the, the numbers posted there are not going to not going to prevent her from leaving. So uh, exactly. Well, it's a, it can be a really devastating event. And the other thing I think is important for all of our facilities to keep in mind is to have a plan uh, in case somebody does uh, successfully uh, exit the building that isn't supposed to and, and may have safety issues um, to have a plan to, to search for them promptly so that the, you're a lot more likely to find them if it's one minute after they leave the building than if it's three hours after. Yeah, having a search and rescue plan and then just some type of system where, um, you know, there's frequent check-ins with the, the person who may present an elopement risk. Right, right. And also checking the physical environment. Um, I, some of the situations I've heard um, about where doors were supposed to be locked and for whatever reason weren't, and um, that was how the person got out. Yeah, yeah. Facility staff really need to be diligent on that. And then, of course, I've heard of cases where people go out a window, uh, you know, unfortunately, sometimes out of a second story window. Um, so... Um, and that's just one of the one of the pitfalls of taking care of people who have severe uh, cognitive impairments. We'll return to our program after this brief message. Do you enjoy AMDA's podcast series? Join AMDA for PALTC 23 to gain access to our live archive for webinars, members-only forum, JAMDA, our monthly journal, e-newsletters, discounts on society and education resources networking opportunities, and more. Plus, you'll get a free electronic copy of AMDA's brand new Delirium, Depression, Dementia Clinical Practice Guide. Learn more and enroll at paltc.org. That's paltc.org. And now back to our podcast. Um, all right. Well, finally, let's talk about the article on page nine from our senior reporter, Joanne Caldi, entitled When Sparring Spouses Need a Referee in Long-Term Care. And I suspect a lot of our listeners have experienced these types of situations in our nursing homes. Uh, I know I have, and it can be quite uncomfortable. And not always spouses, but sometimes it's a you know a, a daughter and a mother or, or what have you, but close family members uh, uh, who are uh, having some conflicts. So, Dr. Gallick, what are some tips that you got from this article? So, family discord is is really not a new um, issue. It's really something that's longstanding. And, you know, we hear jokes, you know, about us, uh, particularly with Thanksgiving and some of the winter holidays coming up of, um, you know, oh boy, what we have in store for us. And um, when you care about people, some of the things that they say and do can can really have an emotional impact. So just kind of keeping aware of that. Um, but there's also some other things you can do. Um, trying to screen, particularly if you have a, a couple or a new resident and a family member for kind of new physical or psychological challenges, 
Um, perhaps there's something that's kind of triggering some of this behavior if it's not been, um, you know, if that discord has not been longstanding. And, you know, another thing we have to keep in the in, in our minds is if we want to make sure no one's being physically or mentally abused by a partner or a family member or anyone, um, and really knowing what your policies and procedures are to, you know, prioritize the safety and protect the rights of, of the resident. But on the same hand, it's, it's very stressful. It can be very stressful, um, particularly for spouses or even adult children who may be trying to serve in a caregiving role for that individual. And that transition time into long-term care can be fraught with challenges. So trying to engage that um, caregiving family member um, to give them permission to not feel guilty to try to, to let them know that staff are around to help now and they can kind of turn over some of those responsibilities, but um, letting still keeping them involved to um, inform the staff of some things that um, have been routines for that person. Uh, really easing that spouse's anxiety is key. Um, because their words and actions can really help um, make their partner feel anxious or agitated. Um, and then, you know, this kind of circles us all the way back to uh, the article about our wonderful social work colleagues. Um, this is uh, something that they're quite skilled at. And, you know, I think we um, engage them not just to solve the problem for us, but really to teach us um, some of their tricks about um, how they work with um, couples and family members to navigate some of these challenges. Also, you can involve some of your behavioral health specialists um, and, and um, for counseling uh, sessions if that's something that's warranted. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think you're right. Our social services folks uh, are often very skilled at this. And, you know, um, people do feel guilty when they put a loved one in a nursing home and sometimes... Uh, uh, you know, that may create conflict between them and the spouse uh, uh, or, or the daughter or what have you. Um, and it also, you know, can spill over into conflicts with staff or, uh, you know, accusations or, uh, you know, and let's face it, um, as a general statement, nobody is going to take as good a care uh, of a person as their own family, right? Uh, it's um, it's just, it's a little bit different. And our, our people do a great job, you know, our CNAs and our nursing staff and so on do a great job, but it's not the same as family, right? That's, that's true. Yeah, so, um, well, that's it for the articles that we were going to discuss in detail. Uh, let's I wanted to mention a few other articles from this November-December issue that stood out to me, uh, including a, a touching uh, DEI or uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion column by Dr. Fatima Nakfi. And, and by the way, I'm really glad that we're going to be having a DEI column as a, as a recurring feature. I think it's uh, it's in line with, with AMDA's mission and it's important stuff. Um, also, the Dear Dr. Steve Levinson column on one of his favorite topics, the importance of high-quality diagnosis in post-acute and long-term care. Uh, then there were a couple of pieces about the latest implementation of regulatory guidance to surveyors that you referenced before, Beth, about you know the new uh, uh, parts of, of Appendix PP, the State Operations Manual. 
Um, and then there's a great IDT column about resident refusals and the sort of you know bioethical issues surrounding refusals of treatment or medication or what have you. Uh, there's also a piece from Penny Cook and Alex Spanko uh, about the collaboration between the Pioneer Network and the Greenhouse Project, which I'm sure many of our listeners would have an interest in. And, and it would sure be nice if more of our facilities could put those types of principles into practice and make our our, our facilities more home-like. Um, so, Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any final comments or wisdom to share on these or any other of your favorite articles from this issue? Sure. I'd like to recognize um, Alan Horowitz, who's um, uh, an attorney and a nurse for um, being awarded the 2022 Carrie Cowles Award. Um, and his article, The Long and Winding Road, uh, Life Care Center, Kirkland's Journey for Justice, um, was awarded um, the Cows Award because it was the most read and downloaded article of the year. And um, for those of you who may not be familiar with Carrie, she was um, Caring's managing editor for four years, who um, un unfortunately passed away in 2018. Um, the winning article um, really addressed the adverse publicity about um, the life care center in Kirkland, um, which was, um, you know, the kind of the first reported nursing home to have an outbreak of COVID-19. So if you haven't read that, um, please um, go back and take a look. Um, it, it really was um, kind of a, it provided a, a factual description um, of what happened, but also, you know, I think talked about some of the, the challenges and the conflicts that deal with um, surveys and how regulations may often not be enough to stop some of these um, very uh, large challenges in terms of infectious disease. Um, the facility did a lot of things right um, that they weren't really credited for. In, in an unknown situation. So a pretty compelling article. Yeah, thank you for that. And and uh, I had the pleasure of working with Carrie the whole time she was with Caring for the Ages. And I know she would have loved Alan's article. Uh, and, and Alan was, um, he participated along the way with that, uh, that appeal. Uh, Life Care Kirkland got initially bopped with the I think a $750,000 CMP and that, uh, got mitigated quite a bit throughout the appeal process. So I encourage our, our listeners to uh, dig out that article. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the November, December, 2022 Caring on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, and Managing Editor, Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. Please take a look at the November-December issue, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and colleagues. Dr. Gallick, thank you again for spending your time with Caring on the Go. And now, till next time, which I guess will be next year, um, Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go, wishing all of our listeners a fabulous and festive holiday season and a healthy, joy-filled 2023.
If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Mm-hmm.